Well, as Frank said, my name is Matt Stefan. I am the campus pastor at the San Mateo campus, and I want to share that it has always been a dearly held aspiration to share a chancel with Frank. And in fact, it is on my bucket list, so now I can just go ahead and check that off. And it was the only item on my bucket list, so I'll have to get some, get some, get some new non-Frank-related items on that list. I'm very excited to be here, and I'm excited that you all are here. We are talking about one of the great themes of the Bible, and that is new life. That whatever is going on in our life, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we've been to church forever, maybe this is our first time, whatever we are having going on in our life, Jesus, through his power, his creative power can make our life new. Now, there's lots of ways that God might do this. Maybe he can heal our relationships or heal our mental health, or maybe God can bring a new job opportunity our way. But I want to talk specifically about one aspect of the way that God can make our life new, and that is that God can heal our perspective And I want to suggest that Jesus can teach us to experience life as a gift. And we have a word for experiencing life as a gift, and that word is gratitude. And so I want to suggest that Jesus can teach us a deep, true gratitude, so deep and so true that it makes our life look and feel new. And I thought we might begin by jumping right into our text for this morning, which is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. It says this. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And over the course of this talk, I want to break this down in three ways. I want to ask, what does it mean to be thankful? What does it mean to have gratitude? What does it mean to have gratitude in all circumstances? And finally, how might the work of God in Christ bring us to the deepest level of gratitude? And so we're thinking about experiencing life as a gift, and we just had a major holiday that we celebrated in part by the exchange of gifts. This is the very first annual Stefan Family Christmas card right here. Uh, if you haven't received yours yet, it's in the mail. I love this photo uh, because it shows off my beautiful family, Margot. She's three. That's my daughter, Katie. My wife, she's ageless, and... My son, Frankie, he's one years old, and in addition to showing off their pretty smiles, it also shows off everyone's best quality. It shows off Margot's personality and my wife's smile. It shows off Frankie's eyes, and it shows off my sweater collection. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I just think that through the course of Christmas, as we exchange gifts, that that will help us think about what What does it mean to receive life as a gift? So that's what we're talking about today. But first, I want to talk about science. Christian author Diana Butler Bass, in her book, Gratitude, oh, sorry, it's called Grateful, she argues that gratitude is really, really good for you. And she catalogs the relevant science saying this. In heart patients, researchers found that people who were grateful slept better, were less depressed and tired, were more self-aware and confident with lower risks of heart inflammation. This suggests that gratitude will actually lower the risk of heart disease. Other studies show that gratitude promotes regular heart rhythms, rebalances hormones, reduces stress, increases relaxation, and promotes resistance to the common cold. Now maybe you can tell from the condition of my voice that, that I haven't been grateful enough. 
We'll get to that in a moment. She goes on to say, gratitude has also been linked to emotional well-being, lower levels of anxiety and depression, decreased panic attacks and phobias, reduced risk of alcoholism and substance abuse, and increased longevity. Yes, she writes, grateful people live longer. Now, maybe uh, you're taking notes, or maybe if you're listening online, you can open another tab in your browser and go ahead and order this book. It's really good, Grateful by Diana Butler Bass. I'll be referencing it quite a bit. Uh, And she goes on to say that not only is gratitude really, really good for you, and maybe this next part will resonate with you the way it resonated with me, gratitude is also really, really difficult. A lot of people struggle with this. And she says this about all this scientific literature. The literature seemed to taught me, if only I were more grateful, all these good things, health and happiness, would come my way, but I just did not feel it, not in the way that studies suggested that I should. I wanted my heart to sing with gratitude, but it was just so expletive deleted hard. None of it was natural to me. Now, maybe you can tell from that letter D that it was one of the lesser expletives that was deleted. But maybe this resonates with you. I have always found gratitude to be somewhat difficult. And so my story is this. Not so much of ingratitude or of entitlement, but I think I have just always thought of gratitude as a soft virtue, somehow of lesser importance to real virtues like hard work and uh, sacrifice and grit. But recently I have had a turning point in my perspective on gratitude, and it occurred at our most recent Menlo Church staff retreat. Now, first, I want to say that Menlo Church has a stellar group of people working on staff here. It is a real honor for me to serve alongside them. I learned so much from them, and I would love for you to maybe after the service, find a staff person, tell them thank you, or maybe bake them some cookies or take them out on your boat, but find a way to say thank you to our awesome and stellar staff. So we were going on this staff retreat, and the night before, my wife and I had our first experience of toddler with stomach flu. And we uh, had gone out to dinner after church in San Mateo with a couple from the San Mateo campus, and Margo was playing on the floor with the other kids, and she got sick, and I was very proud. Over the course of the evening, 11 out of 16 shots hit the receptacle, and of her five misses, Two were in the restaurant, one was in the car, and two were direct hits to my chest. Miraculously, I did not contract this stomach flu. I was very grateful for that. And so the next morning, I decided that I was healthy and I should go on to this retreat. And so I approached this retreat with the fatigue and desperation known only to parents of small children. And as I drove myself over, I prayed, Dear God, I am desperate. Please speak to me on this retreat. I am so worn out, and I need to hear from you. And this staff retreat was, of all things, partly about gratitude. And so I began to pray, Okay, Jesus, teach me. Teach me about gratitude. Plant gratitude deep in my heart. And so I've been on this journey for the last several months, learning about gratitude, working on being grateful every single day. And it has been really life-changing for me. I'm excited to share some of the things that I have learned. But one of the things I've learned is that gratitude as a virtue is something that makes all the other virtues come alive. And so sacrifice without uh, gratitude can be grim, obligatory, and lead to bitterness. But with gratitude, sacrifice can be joyful. And hard work without gratitude can lead to entitlement. But with gratitude, it can lead to a servant's heart. 
And so I've had a real change of perspective about gratitude. And what has helped me have a change of perspective about gratitude is having a better understanding of what we mean when we say the word gratitude. Diana Butler Bass tells us that there is a wrong way to do gratitude, and that is with a sense of transaction and obligation. You see, from a very young age, well-meaning adults teach us to say thank you, oftentimes with very pointy elbows. And so you might have received, if you were lucky, a new pair of shoes for Christmas, and you're so happy, and you say thank you. Or if you were unlucky, you might have received a new pair of socks, and then this well-meaning adult in your life might have done this, say thank you. And we have considered it good manners that regardless of the quality of the gift, it's simply good manners to say thank you. And uh, so bad gift after bad gift, we've forced ourselves, however we really feel in our heart, to say thanks. And sort of a famous Stefan family anecdote is this. When my parents were newlyweds, on the eve of their very first Christmas, my mother dreamed about what romantic gift her new husband might bestow upon her upon their first shared Christmas morn. And my father, ever the practical person, got her jumper cables. And so my mom, on Christmas morning, had to go outside in the cold and shed a few tears and then force herself dutifully to go back in and say thank you for the jumper cables. We have learned it is just good manners, even if it's a really bad gift. We force ourselves to say thank you. What's worse than a bad gift, however, is when you have no gift at all. Maybe you've been in a scenario where someone gave you a gift, and it was clear that they expected you to give a gift back to them, and maybe you had none to give, and you had to say, we didn't get you anything. I'm so sorry. And often we will feel a sense of embarrassment or shame or indebtedness to this person. You see, deep in our sense of social well-being, our social interactions is this transaction and obligational sense of gratitude. Diana Butler Bass, who is a historian by trade, says that this sense of transaction and obligation around gratitude is actually built deep, deep, deep within human history. She says that this used to be the foundation of human civilization, And so in ancient Rome, if you uh, were a proprietor of a store and maybe a very powerful and important person might come into your store to buy clothes or maybe earthenwares, and in addition to this exchange of goods, they would expect, because they have blessed you with their very presence, they would expect something really important from you. And oftentimes this was a very big deal. And so maybe they bought some clothes or earthenwares from you and they paid for it, but then they would expect you to provide to them maybe a vote in an upcoming election or help spreading propaganda in their favor, or maybe even accompanying them to war. And so every exchange, every transaction had this sense of they gave you something, they gave you presents, they gave you association with a powerful name, and you gave them something important from your life. And this whole system was called in the ancient world a system of gratitude. And so this transactional and obligational approach to gratitude has trickled down even into our modern day language. If somebody does something great for you, you might say, how could I ever repay you? That's a transactional way of approaching gratitude, of saying thank you. Or maybe we will say, instead of thank you, I owe you a debt of gratitude. This is, again, a a transactional and obligational way of talking about gratitude. But even if we can force ourselves to have good manners and say thank you, oftentimes that has nothing to do with what is going on in our heart. 
In fact, we have had to have this intuitive distinction in the way we talk about gratitude that we all use and know, that we know there is gratitude of mere manners, but then there is what we might call heartfelt gratitude. And even the fact that we have a phrase called heartfelt gratitude shows us that we all know we have a need to distinguish between this mere manners gratitude and real true gratitude. And true heartfelt gratitude is this, the joy and surprise of a really great gift. And so my father, having learned his lesson 40 years later about practical gifts, he, for this Christmas, gave to me a Kansas City Chiefs cuckoo clock. (laughs) Now, I love this thing, and Dad, if you are watching this sermon online, I love it. I love it. I'm really excited about it. This brought me great joy for a couple of reasons. One, I love the Kansas City Chiefs. They're my hometown football team, and this year they might win the Super Bowl. And if they do, I will be holding this cuckoo clock as the clock expires, and I will raise it up in the air and cheer. Uh, and it also brought me great joy because my dad was thinking of me. He, I didn't ask for this. He just thought, saw this, thought of me, ordered it, and that means he was thinking of me, and that brings me great joy. And it also brought me great surprise because it's a cuckoo clock. That was very surprising to me. And so true gratitude is receiving a gift that brings you joy and surprise. And when we apply these things to our spiritual lives, we can maybe see that a transactional and obligational way of approaching God is maybe not so helpful. And so maybe you have felt this pressure to always have good manners with God, to always be saying thank you, because if not, maybe he will stop bringing this transaction, these blessings your way. You're exchanging your gratitude for God's blessings, and we've all sort of felt trapped that way. But as we will see in a moment, God invites us to a much broader conversation than merely and only saying thank you. In fact, the reality is this, no relationship can function if all we can say to someone is thank you, regardless of what is going on in that relationship. On the other hand, maybe we can already see that experiencing things as the joy and surprise of a really great gift can be a really helpful spiritual principle. Now, I want to suggest that even though it's difficult to have this deep and true gratitude, we can learn it, and the first maybe step of learning deep, true gratitude is to learn to feel two things at the same time. And here I want to address a common issue that people think about when we talk about gratitude. Maybe you're already thinking about it. And that is this. What is the relationship between gratitude as joy and surprise and the things in my life around which I have no joy? The things around which maybe I have a great deal of pain or real deep, true devastation. How do we be grateful in life when there is so much pain? It's a common question. And I want to suggest that the Bible approaches this question by coaching us, encouraging us to feel two things at once. In fact, I want to suggest that feeling two things at once is a great measure of our maturity. And I know that it is a great measure of our maturity because devoted to this idea of feeling two things at once is an entire episode of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Now, I am at a phase in life where I am intimately familiar with lots of toddler cartoons 
If you're not familiar with Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, it's a cartoon loosely based on the puppet characters from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Daniel Tiger was one of the main puppets from uh, Mr. Rogers, and now there is a cartoon all about it, and it's my favorite of all the toddler cartoons. This one is my favorite because it brings so much joy, so much wisdom and emotional intelligence to common everyday problems of being human beings. In fact, a lot of times for me as I watch an episode of Daniel Tiger, it ends with tears and prayer. I'll be sitting next to Margo, and as the episode concludes, I'll be wiping away a tear and praying, Jesus, please make me more like Daniel Tiger. It is a really insightful show. I really love it. And so this episode is called Daniel Tiger Feels Two Feelings, and it's a good guide for us. But remarkably, the Bible is also teaching us to feel two feelings. Let me give you an example. One is from Psalm 13. It's a psalm of David. David is one of the great characters of the Bible, great king in the Old Testament, great warrior, also a great poet. And he wrote this psalm. And it says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And so instead of mere manners with God, already we can see we have a deep, honest, very pain, very very grieving prayer. David is teaching us, the Bible is teaching us to be very honest with God. And he goes on to say, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will die. Now, maybe David is being overly dramatic. Maybe he wrote this as a dramatic adolescent. This sounds a lot like my diary at 14. Or he's helping us to see what it will be like to be honest with God and feel two things at once. Because, But one verse later, David says this, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises for he has been good to me. And so, as a modern reader, this feels a little bit like emotional whiplash. We might ask, David, which is it? Are you going to die or are you going to sing praises? Pick one. It's confusing to us. But I want to suggest that David and this psalm is teaching us to feel two things at one time. Let me give you another example. It is from the book of Lamentations. Lamentations comes within a point in the plot of the Old Testament where after a thousand-year wrestling match between the nation of Israel and God, God decides the na- to let the nation of Israel go its own way and choose its own destiny. And almost immediately, Israel is conquered by a massive military superpower, its neighbor Babylon. So without God, Israel is invaded. And the book of Jeremiah catalogs this widespread societal collapse, that their whole world uh, is invaded, that the cities are burned to the ground, Jerusalem is burned to the ground, their world has ended. And as they go, the survivors marched off to be prisoners of war in a foreign land. They write the book of Lamentations, five chapters of deep, painful grief about their world ending. Right in the middle of that, they write this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. So right in the middle of all of these chapters of really painful grief is this beautiful bit of hope. They're feeling two things at once. I want to pause here and say maybe you are here 
feeling like your world has ended. Maybe somebody died. Maybe somebody was given a really devastating diagnosis. Maybe somebody lost a job. Maybe a relationship in your life is so broken you can never imagine it being fixed. I want to say to you, God's not done with you. God's not done with that situation. Keep, keep praying. Keep praying. Keep offering God this prayerful lament about that painful thing in your life. And one day, maybe not yet, but one day, you will be able to say, great is thy faithfulness. Hang in there and keep praying. One day you'll be able to say his mercies are new every day. But the book of Lamentations is inviting us to feel two things at once, and not just shallow feelings, but the deepest possible feelings, really true, deep, painful grief, and really true, great hope. You see, the Bible gives us really powerful tools to engage directly with the pain in our lives. When we have an experience of loss or grief, the Bible invites us to really honest, prayerful lament. And when we are in trouble or confused, the Bible invites us to really prayerful requests for help. We can always grieve with God. We can always ask for his help. And so the Bible is inviting us to engage directly with our pain. You see, the Bible never coaches us, never invites us to disengage with the painful realities of our lives. And sometimes when we talk about gratitude, we talk about it more like positivity, where the goal might be to eliminate or ignore the painful realities of our lives. But the Bible never does that. The Bible invites us to engage directly with the pain of our lives and find that God meets us there. The Bible invites us to honor our pain, to pray through it, and then to bring right alongside that pain at the, at, at the exact same time our gratitude, our hope. The Bible is inviting us to feel two things at once. Here we might think of a photograph and the way we focus on different images within a photograph. Nowadays we have smartphones which identify the faces in a photo and then focus the the image so that the face is very clear. But there used to be a contraption on the side of the camera that let you manually adjust the focus of the camera. And I always thought that that thing was way too hard to use. I could never figure it out. But it allowed you to focus on either the foreground of an image or the background of an image. Here is an example. Now, on the one side, we have a picture of a pretty yellow flower. And on the other side, we have a picture of some vandalized pipes that might represent overdue bills. But crucially, crucially, the content of these two images is the same. The content of the images is the same. But because the focus is differently, we experience the two images very differently. One is a picture of a pretty flower, and the other is a picture of overdue bills. And not only do we experience them differently, we say that they are pictures of different things. One, we would say, hey, that's a picture of a flower, and the other one is a picture of some pipes. But the content of the images is identical. And it's the same in our lives. You see, we can never eliminate certain contents of the photo of our lives. All we can do, all we can do is refocus the image onto the the things that we would like. And so right alongside this pretty flower are the vandalized and overdue bills. But crucially, don't miss this, all the same things in this photo. Profoundly, 
our passage does not say give thanks for all circumstances as if each circumstance had a silver lining or a lesson to teach you. Circumstances might have a silver lining. Circumstances might have a lesson to teach you, but that is not what our passage is telling us. Profoundly, our passage instead says give thanks in all circumstances. You see, your circumstances might actually be rather horrific, might truly be horrible. You might need to deploy those powerful biblical tools of prayerfully lamenting and grieving and prayerfully asking for help. Your circumstances might be really truly bad, but this passage is inviting us to ride alongside those bad circumstances, bring in gratitude and hope. Now, if we've learned to honor our pain, and if we've learned to refocus the image of our lives onto the things that we are grateful for, I want to suggest that we are still only partway there. See, the deepest level of gratitude requires a massive change in perspective to not only rightly focus the image of our lives, but to be grateful that there is even a photograph at all. The deepest level of gratitude is to be grateful for the photograph itself. You see, our whole life, we need to be grateful for all the good and all the bad. Catholic spiritual thinker Henry Nouwen puts it like this, talking about being grateful for our entire lives. He says this, to be grateful for the good things that happen in our lives is easy, but to be grateful for all of our lives, the good as well as the bad, the moments of joy as well as the moments of sorrow, the successes as well as the failures, the rewards as well as the rejections, that requires hard spiritual work. Still, we are only truly grateful people when we can say thank you to all that has brought us to the present moment. As long as we keep dividing our lives between events and people we would like to remember and those we would rather forget, we cannot claim the fullness of our beings as a gift from God to be grateful for. And so my whole life, all the good, all the bad, is a gift. That it happened at all is a gift. That God dreamed us up and let us run around on this planet, whatever happened to us, that was a gift. And I got just a glimpse of what this perspective might be like in a recent experience with my son, Frankie. See, shortly after he was born, we learned that he had a malformity of the skull, and it quickly became clear that he was going to need to have surgery uh, and the MRI showed that indeed right under his skull was a large, benign, but still large and living, breathing mass. It was functioning. We didn't really know what it was. And so the doctors told us that was going to need to be removed. And this is a photo just moments before this surgery. What a happy, brave fella. And that curly cue on top of his head uh, is a symptom of whatever was wrong, whatever malformity of the skull, whatever that benign mass was. It caused him to grow, that really cute little curly cue. And so in the process, his MRI, I got to hold him while he went under for the anesthesia. I got to hold his hand. But for the operation, that was going to require us to turn him over to the nurse. You see, we couldn't go into the operating room. And so when he was still awake, we were going to have to turn him over to some strangers. And the nurse and the doctors came, and they took him for a warm-up lap around the surgery ward and let him meet everybody so that he could get used to going with these strangers. But we knew that we were going to have to turn him over to the doctor that we didn't know. And then they were going to take him into the OR and give him the anesthesia there. 
And so we prayed with him, and then we gave him to the doctor. And he waved, Frankie gave us a little wave, and we said goodbye to him. And then we stood there, my wife and I, not knowing if Frankie would return. It was uh, a rather invasive surgery, and so there was, there was quite a substantial risk. The mass was benign, but still they were going to have to uh, invade his cranial cavity. And so while we were there, have, after turning him over, I found myself feeling all kinds of things at once. I felt great trepidation about my son. Would he return? Would he be okay? I felt a sense of inadequacy. I was unsure how to comfort my wife. I felt confused. Was I supposed to break down? Was I supposed to stay strong? But right alongside that, I was very surprised to find, I also felt a deep sense of gratitude for having ever gotten to know Frankie at all. Even just knowing him in that moment felt like a gift, that even just for six months I got to hold him, he was my son, whatever else might happen, that felt like a gift to me there. And what I realized in that moment is that even if things went terribly wrong, I knew that Jesus would carry us through that grief. And I was able to just feel happy, just feel grateful that I ever even got to know Frankie. Now, he came out of that surgery. He recovered quickly. He's very healthy now. And so I know that our pain and trepidation is but one small portion of 1% of what lots of you all might be facing. I know there are much bigger things in our lives. But to turn my son over to strangers... And to have to only trust in Christ was deeply insightful. You see, this deepest level of gratitude requires from us a profound act of faith. In order to experience life as a gift, we must be able to say, whatever happens to me, whatever the contents of my photo, Christ will be enough. Whatever God has for me will be enough. And in Lamentations, this is what they mean when they say, the Lord is my portion. I need nothing else because the Lord is what I have. And this amounts to a change in our fundamental narrative about our life. You see, psychologists tell us that we all have a fundamental narrative, a core story, a fundamental story that we are always telling ourselves, and we interpret all of our experiences, all of our reality, we make all of our decisions filtered through this one core narrative, and oftentimes, this one core story might be resentful, a resentful core narrative, and this might sound like this, a resentful core narrative that we might constantly be telling ourselves might sound like this, I am owed something that has not been given to me. Now, oftentimes, these resentful core narratives will have a kernel of truth, a plausibility, and so it might sound like this. I wasn't given the love I, need, I needed from my parents. A resentful core narrative might sound like this. I wasn't given the love I needed from my parents. Now, we also might be able to have a satisfied core story about ourselves, and that satisfied core story might sound like this. My parents were flawed people, but they did everything they could to love me. You can see the contrast there. And it turns out that all of us are on this journey from an unsatisfied core narrative to a satisfied core story about our lives. The theologian Bruce Springsteen said this, everybody's got a hungry heart. To which Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again to experience our lives as a gift. 
we have to be able to say, whatever comes my way, Christ will be enough. Whenever I am trouble, whenever I am in trouble, Christ's help will be enough. Whenever I am hurting, his healing will be enough for me. I never have to strive. God will be enough. Or maybe this might sound like whatever hunger I may be experiencing, whether it is hunger for money or for love or for status or for legacy, Christ can satisfy that. Whatever hurt I feel, Christ can heal it. Whatever need I have can be met. And even if not, Christ will still be enough for us. This is Jesus teaching us true deep gratitude to take the photo of our lives and to focus the image onto all the bad things and say, here, where it really hurt in my life, Christ was there with me, healing me. And here, where I was really in trouble, Christ was there caring for me. And here, where the pain was really chronic, there was no end in sight, Christ sustained me and carried me. And then to refocus the image onto the good things and say, here, Christ was bringing me joy and bringing blessings into my life. To consider the whole picture and to say, in all of it, Jesus was at work. This is the deepest level of gratitude. And if we take that perspective, that Christ was at work in the whole picture, if we take the perspective that I am grateful for the photograph itself, there won't be room in our hearts for entitlement or ingratitude or bitterness. We will have learned to receive life as a gift. Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we lift up to you the photograph of our lives. Lord, we zoom in on the things that are, are troubling us, that are deeply hurtful to us, and we offer them to you. We ask you to heal those parts of our picture. Be with us in our pain. Lord, and we refocus the image onto the yellow flowers of our lives. Thank you for those. Thank you for the joy and surprise you bring into our lives. Lord Jesus, we ask you, teach us true gratitude to be grateful for the photo itself. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.